Coming up on Tech Nation, the first in our two-part series, Chernobyl, Then and Now. Today we'll hear from a journalist on what exactly happened at the time of the accident, while next week we'll hear from an historian on both the regional and global impact of Chernobyl, which continues to this day. Later in today's show, we'll hear about an app that enables you to collect and manage all your own medical records, and we'll hear once again from Helen Torley of Halozyme, this time a technology which reduces the time for infusion therapy. All of this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. I hate to weigh in on a current hot topic, but sometimes it's helpful to add a few facts to the whirlwind of debate. What I'm talking about here is the Medicare for All discussion, or idea, political football, whatever it is. It's a rising concept in our society that all Americans need health care, not just the lucky ones who have private health insurance. Much of the debate, both pro and con, seems to boil down to one positive argument and three negative ones. The positive one is, this is the right thing to do. While the negatives loosely fit under, this will bankrupt us, or I like my health insurance just the way it is, and I don't like the government taking over my health care. Sure, there are more responses, but as I listen, these four shout the loudest. For clues on how to solve this, though, we might look across the Atlantic Ocean to another nation, the U.K., or more familiar to us by its constituent countries, England, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. The UK has had a health care for all system since 1948, and it's called the NHS, the National Health Service. What's interesting to me is that they also have private insurance. Take whatever services you want from the NHS, but with private insurance, you have more choices. You can go to the front of the line, pick your provider or your hospital. When the general NHS can't see you right away, you don't have to wait. And you still have the NHS as a backup. Now, the average monthly premium in the U.K. for private insurance is $153 a month, and about 1 out of 10 take out private insurance. This 10% gets all of what the National Health Service has to offer whenever they want it, and they also get the advantages of private health insurance that are familiar to us in the United States. So how does this $153 per month, plus all the free NHS services, compare to the United States? In the U.S., the average health insurance premium is $393, more than twice as much. And in the U.S., when a health crisis happens, you get to deal with your insurance company, which is a for-profit business trying to make a profit, and hospitals and doctors and everyone else. It's enough to put you back in the hospital. 
Now, the NHS is no utopia, but it is a health care service wherein the standard of care is decided by normal, everyday citizens, health care professionals, health advocates, and others working together. These decisions are organized under NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. Constantly balancing these decisions to fit within the fixed NHS health care budget is challenging, but they are the ones who actually decide, for example, which cancer drugs will go to which patient populations through the NHS. It's heartbreaking work, but how it is actually done can be found on the Internet. And overall, there is one guiding principle. I remember it because it was told to me in an interview by the former chair of NICE, Sir Michael Rawlins. He simply said that the guiding principle behind it all is we take care of each other. So who do you want taking care of you and the health services you will receive at no charge? Citizens, healthcare professionals, and health advocates, or for-profit insurance companies? The UK experience tells us that Medicare for All and private insurance can coexist, although the private medical insurance industry won't be quite so profitable. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, the first installment of our two-part series, Chernobyl, Then and Now, gleaning information from over 60 new interviews and recently released documents, journalist Adam Hickenbotham tells us what exactly happened at the Chernobyl nuclear reactor number four and what has become of it today. Next week in part two, MIT historian Kate Brown looks at the impact on human health and changes to the environment, both of which go far beyond the site of Chernobyl. We'll also look at the curious case of minimization by many governments and international organizations, as well as the global impact of nuclearization since its inception in the 1940s. Later on today's show, we'll hear how we can collect and manage our own medical records. Yes, there's an app for that. And we'll hear once again from Helen Torley, the CEO of Halozyme Therapeutics. Halozyme has a technology which reduces the time to receive infusion therapy. Good news for cancer and rheumatoid arthritis patients, among others. Journalist Adam Higginbotham spent more than 10 years reviewing letters, reading unpublished personal accounts, and gathering documents from recently released archives. The result is Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. 
Adam, you know, the, the time was 1986, over 40 years ago. There's a meltdown at the nuclear power plant in Chernobyl in the Ukraine, then part of the Soviet Union. Let's start with the technology of nuclear power. For those of us who don't quite remember or never knew, <laughs> in your very simplest terms, how does a nuclear reactor take radioactive material and generate electricity? Uh, well, it generates electricity in much the same way as any other conventional power station would, uh, like a gas or a um, coal-fired station. But in this case, it uses the heat released by a nuclear chain reaction to turn water into steam, and the steam turns a turbine. Well, it's so easy when you describe it, Adam. <laughs> it's, but it's, it's hard easy in principle, technology. <laughs> but, but can be hard when applied to, you know, practical ends. And in truth, when a nuclear uh, power plant fails, a whole lot more serious things can happen than with a gas or a coal plant. That is true, because if you design a nuclear reactor in such a way that it doesn't have a containment building, which is what happened in Chernobyl, then if something goes wrong with a reactor and you get a release of radioactive material, then immediately you have some of the most toxic substances known to man loose in the atmosphere. Now, in your work for this book, you were able to speak with over 60 individuals who experienced Chernobyl, both near and far. Um, let's go inside the control room of Chernobyl right before the accident. It's a windowless room with a low ceiling, some 30 feet by 60 feet. The midnight shift of operators had just arrived, and it was tense. You write, a rancid haze of cigarette smoke hung in the air. Take us from there. So what happened from that point was that the midnight sh shift had arrived, but um, the accident occurred. The proximate cause of the accident was, was uh, a safety test that by the night of April the 26th, was several years overdue. It was supposed to have been conducted when uh, the reactor was in the process of being commissioned. And they had elected to conduct the test during the course of a routine shutdown. And that routine shutdown had originally been scheduled to take place much earlier in the previous day, but had been delayed because they were nearing the end of the month. And uh, those technicians who presided over the Kiev region electricity grid called and said that, that they needed all the electricity they, they could get in order to supply factories with electricity to, to fulfil the requirements under the terms of the plan, the monthly production quotas. So they had to push back the start of the test. So the people who arrived in the control room at midnight on April the 25th, going into the morning of the 26th, were expecting merely to just go through a routine shutdown. They believed... Some of them believed that the test had already taken place. And then what they also discovered is that the, uh, the reactor was now running at a lower power than the test had been intended to be conducted at. And then the operator who was on the control panel controlling the reactor itself made a mistake. And in transitioning from one method of operation of the reactor to another, he let the power fall to almost zero. And in trying to bring it back up to the level at which they could run the test, they withdrew almost all of the, the available control rods from the reactor. And the control rods are the, the principal means 
of controlling the rate of increase of the chain reaction inside the reactor. It's analogous to, to using an accelerator on a car. You push in the control rods and the rate of chain reaction, the rate of increase of the chain reaction decreases. You pull out the control rods and it increases. And they had no control rods left in the reactor. (laughs) Well, they had no control rods left in the reactor, but the problem here is that that they were dealing with this model of reactor known as an RBMK, which many of them knew was unstable to operate at the best of times. It was an enormous nuclear reactor, 20 times by volume larger than many reactors in the West. And it was so hard to control that some of the, the men who operated it said that, you know, it was like... It was as physically laborious as digging a ditch. They said that you would never be able to sit down. You're on your feet all the time. You were, you were tapping buttons and moving levers on the control panel constantly. And that after 15 minutes, you'd have broken a sweat. So this thing was hard to control. It was also capricious and was known by the men who had designed it to be susceptible to all sorts of hazards under the wrong circumstances. And what happened here is that there are a series of design faults and a series of operator errors which, taken individually, would not have resulted in an accident. What had to happen was that all of them had to fall into a deadly confluence simultaneously. And then, after all that had happened, someone would have to press the emergency shutdown button, which then pushed all of the control rods simultaneously into the core of the reactor. And that's exactly what happened on April the 26th. Now, as I understand it, the engineer who was doing this was a 25-year-old engineer, two months on the job, and this was the first time he had ever done a shutdown job. That's right. Uh, his name was Leonid Toptonov, and he was an excellent engineer, but he, he had not had a great deal of experience. And, anal- and again, analogously, the, the best way to... To talk about the shutdown period of, of, of operating the reactor is, it, is it, the, the reactor was, was hardest to handle during startup and shutdown. It was like flying an aeroplane. You know, flying an aeroplane in flight is, is not as demanding as those two things at the beginning, one at the beginning and one at the end. Takeoff and landing, very tricky. Same thing with a nuclear reactor. So much so that Soviet nuclear engineers had special startup teams who would go around from one reactor to another specifically to handle the startup period. And the shutdown period could be just as dangerous. And so Toptonov, on the night of the accident, arrived at the plant not realising that he was going to have to do this on his own because other people within the, the bureaucracy of the plant had believed that the shutdown had already taken place. So the expert who was supposed to be at his elbow to help him through this process had been told not to bother turning up to work that night. The guy from nuclear safety, that guy? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. Exactly. So he was doing this in, in any event, even if it wasn't nuclear, he was doing this with nobody there supervising them. I mean, it just, it's, it's incredible to think of it. And if I read you... Well, he had... There were other experts around, but the, the specific guy who was supposed to be there precisely for this purpose was not there. And worse uh-huh. still, the guy who was running the test, you know, was, a, was an infamous Martinet, who was not accustomed to people disobeying his orders. So although other members of the control room staff objected and attempted to oppose his intention to go ahead with conducting this test while the reactor was under these, was in this unstable state, 
he nonetheless insisted and forced them to go ahead with it. If I read your book correctly, this young engineer followed the procedure, but then he skipped a step. And that's so human. And there's nothing to check you to make sure that you did that. Just simply skipped a step. Yeah, he just made a mistake. And we don't really know why. But he did. He made a mistake. He skipped this step. And that was what began the chain of problems, because the reactor then fell to such a low power level that they had to put it into an even more unstable state and withdraw all of these control rods. And that, in effect, became like cocking the hammer on a gun. And Adam, I understand, just sticking with the human aspect for just a bit, he skipped the step, and then for at least four minutes he froze? We don't know what he did during that period because the reactor stayed in the same state that it was in, and the records just indicate that nothing happened for four minutes. So he didn't take any further action for four minutes. Exactly. And at that point, they, you know, they should have shut the reactor down. But Dyatlov, who was the deputy chief engineer for operations in the plant, who was overseeing the test, insisted that it proceed. You are listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is journalist Adam Higginbotham, who's written for such publications as The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Wired, and Smithsonian. He's here today with Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. Now, the temperature rose to some 4,650 degrees. I'm not quite sure what the temperature of the sun is, but it's very close to the temperature of the surface of the sun. And there was an explosion. There was uh, the first of at least two explosions. The first explosion was a steam explosion, which completely destroyed the reactor. And then the second explosion was probably a hydrogen explosion, which tore the roof off the building and destroyed the upper parts of the walls of the reactor hall. And this was what liberated radionuclides into the atmosphere. And a fire immediately started in the graphite stacks in the reactor, which they then found almost impossible to put out. Haunting for me was seeing the pictures you have of the operators with their friends in college or their official pictures and then seeing a sketch of them. And it's just a sketch. It's a line drawing up to their ankles in radioactive water, unable to stand, part of the team trying desperately to manually open the coolant valves. These were all young men, and they were clearly all committed beyond any sense of personal safety at that time. They were all young men. In fact, one of the, those who survived told me afterwards that, you know, being a reactor operator was a young man's game because it was such a stressful job that after a certain point you just couldn't sit there all night and do it. And it was one of the, the, the most important elements of, of reporting and writing the book to me was to, was to bring to life these people because, it, it, you know, many accounts that I'd read of the accident previously had either been very technical or their characterization of the individuals involved had been so stereotypical that, you know, they were divided into these selfless firemen who strode knowingly into danger, sacrificing themselves for the motherland, or these, you know, feeble-minded, poorly trained, incompetent operators who were the people who precipitated the explosion. And that simply wasn't the case. You know, these people were, were highly trained technical staff and they were, you know, young, ambitious and keen, and they were dedicated not only to the plant but to helping to save their colleagues. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they did do these things um, knowing and understanding a lot of the consequences. 
Of all the people on site, who made it out, who didn't, and what happened to the ones who did? Well, you know, when I started reporting on this, um, I must admit I was pretty surprised to find out exactly how many of them did make it out. Um, and in fact, today, some of them still work in the nuclear industry. Um, you know, so there were there were those among the control room staff who, who remained behind and stayed inside the reactor building um, in an attempt to, well, in a, in a fruitless and misguided attempt to save the reactor principally because they thought that uh, if they got enough cooling water in, they would be able to save the reactor from melting down. But, of course, the reactor had already been totally destroyed. They just didn't realise that. Um, and the men who attempted to do that... You know, they suffered uh, extraordinary radiation in in injuries as a result of, of staying in there and attempting to do that. Um, you know, but many other people who were either in the control room or elsewhere in the reactor building at the time, you know, they made it out and they were taken to hospital in Moscow. And, you know, some underwent months of treatment and, and despite having contracted, uh, you know, acute radiation syndrome, and becoming extremely sick, uh, they did survive. Well, I must say, uh, you you did you took years to put this together, and I can only imagine that in talking with some sixty, seventy people, you would talk, and then little pieces of the puzzle would come together. A story would come together that affected something else. It must have been a very a, a very challenging undertaking in that regard. It was absolutely fascinating to do it. Um, you know, in a way, it's the part of the process that I miss the most. Writing it, I found very hard, but reporting it was, was you know, was actually pretty good fun. And me, and particularly my fixer in Ukraine, who, you know, I began working with back in 2006, and, and we've become good friends. You know, I would keep going back, and we would find new people to talk to, and they would name somebody who was who was relevant to... Constru reconstructing what had happened and they put us in touch with them and then we we go and get a bit more of the story from them and you could kind of you know cross check elements of the story against not only you know those interviews but also existing documentation and you know court transcripts and things like that it was it was it was really fascinating to reconstruct it but you're right it was it was it was quite um intricate work it's going to say a fine mental challenge, but I hope I'm I grow up someday and can hire a fixer of my own. <laughs> I love hiring a fixer. <laughs> Isn't it great being a journalist? I love it. <laughs> now I know I can hire a fixer. <laughs> In the case of this Chernobyl accident, the Soviets tried to keep it quiet, but two days later, full two days later, something happened and they couldn't. Yes. Well, what happened first was, was, you know, so enormous that there was no way that they could keep it secret, um, as they had done with, with almost every nuclear accident that had happened in the Soviet Union previously. But this one, you know, was so enormous and so much radiation was released. And crucially, I think it was released so close to the western border of Ukraine and therefore the borders of Europe, um, that the radiation was released, went at, at high up into the atmosphere and began blowing um, towards Scandinavia. So although they kept information about it completely secret for all of Saturday and all of Sunday, by late Sunday and early Monday, radiation had reached Sweden. And so what happened is that uh, early on Monday morning, 
a um, a worker in the radiochemistry lab at Foschmark nuclear power plant north of Stockholm. Uh, had a cup of coffee in the coffee room of the power plant as he usually did. And then after he'd finished his breakfast, he passed through a radiation monitoring point and a bell went off. And this man, Cliff Robinson, who was this Anglo-Swedish um, technician in his 20s, was totally mystified because he hadn't even been inside the reactor block of the power plant at this point. He'd just been in the coffee room. So he thought, well, I, I, I can't possibly be contaminated. What, what, what's going on? Um, but the bell went off, bringing down somebody from the plant dosimetric staff who made him go through the scanner again. And the bell went off again. And they looked at one another. And then he went through it again. And then the alarm didn't go off. So they just thought, well, this must be... This is obviously the equipment's faulty. It's miscalibrated. So... Robinson goes back to work, and they just think that you know they'll recalibrate the machine later. So then he goes upstairs, and it's it's actually Robinson's job to to monitor radiation output from the station. Uh, so he goes about his business, taking samples from the vent stack above the above the station, and then he comes back down at about nine a.m. for a, for another cup of coffee. Um, and this time, as he approaches the radiation monitoring point, he can see there's a huge line of his colleagues waiting to go through this monitoring point, but every single one of them is setting the alarm off. And so he takes a sample from something that they're wearing. He takes a shoe off one of the workers and puts in a plastic bag and then takes it back to his lab. And when he puts it on this germanium detector, which is a thing for, for measuring gamma radiation, he can see that, that all over the bottom of the shoe are all these fission products that he would usually expect to find inside the reactor at Foschmark. But there's also all these other elements that he realizes could only come from a nuclear reactor that had been exposed to the atmosphere. And that's how people in the West first found out that something had happened in Chernobyl. Real news. Science doesn't lie. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Technology brought it home. <laughs> we know what we have here. And so then how long, and this is from a media perspective uh, and a political perspective, I would guess, how long between that point and the point where the Soviets fessed up? Hmm. What's the difference between Stockholm time and Moscow time? I'm not sure. So that's so basically they figure this out because at the moment Robinson is doing this, then they are in Stockholm, separate readings are being taken. Um. Some of them that were that he, that were being taken in order to make sure everybody was conforming with the terms of the um, test ban treaty on on atmospheric nuclear testing. Um, so when he first sees it, he and and everybody else at the Foschmark station still think that they're looking for a leak inside their own plant. And it isn't until I think around midday that they begin to realise, using meteorological monitoring, that that's actually not what's happened, and that it's come from somewhere else and that the wind is blowing from the southeast. Um, so at that point, Swedish diplomats in Moscow begin asking questions of Soviet uh, diplomats and uh, representatives of the nuclear industry. But they completely stonewall them, and they say that they don't know what they're talking about, that uh, they have no knowledge of any uh, nuclear incidents taking place on Soviet territory. Um, 
And it isn't until 8 o'clock that evening that a broadcast is made over Moscow Radio admitting that there has been an accident at the Chernobyl nuclear power station. There's no mention of any radioactive releases in the initial three-line um, statement that's released by TASS. I've been speaking with journalist Adam Hickenbotham, the author of Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, we'll learn about an app that enables us to manage our own medical records. And we'll also hear about a technology that reduces the many hours it takes to receive infusion therapy. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with journalist Adam Higginbotham about Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. You write, uh, the paranoid secrecy ingrained in the Soviet state paved the way to the accident. This was, was definitely true of the Soviet nuclear industry, which was, which was you know, overshadowed, dominated by what was known as the, Med the Ministry of Media and Machine Building, um, which was the agency that oversaw the Soviet atom weapons program and was this kind of you know, monolithic edifice of total secrecy. Um, and not only ran the atom weapons program, but also ran all of the fuel cycle of the civilian nuclear industry. So they were responsible for everything from, from um, mining uranium to you know, manufacturing and distributing the fuel rods that went to the plants. Um, and they, and that was a, they, they were paragons of obsessive paranoid secrecy. And the plant itself, you know, was, was, um, was festooned with KGB agents and, and almost everything everybody did was, was subject to secrecy. You couldn't take the accumulated knowledge of all the reactors everywhere and how they were failing to have a unified picture of how do we how do we manage all this because everything had to be shut 
you know, in terms of news or in terms of information, had to be shut and contained immediately. So there was no growth of how you fix this across the board. Exactly. Um, I mean, both Efim Slavsky, who was the head of the Ministry of Media and Machine Building, and Anatoly Alexandrov, who was in charge of the um, Kurchatov Institute of Atomic Energy, had known for many years that this the RBNK reactor had numerous faults. Um, but they had done their best to, to conceal these, even from the people that ran the plants themselves. And as you say, every accident that took place was regarded as a state secret. So the only way that the operators who worked at these plants gained information about the, the fact that these things had happened was by um, rumour and what they referred to as Sarafan radio, which was the kind of internal uh, rumour mill within the um, nuclear community because there were no official reports about these things were, were allowed out. You talked about a, a containment or a container uh, in case of a nuclear meltdown, um, in case of a reactor meltdown, and they placed a steel and concrete, uh, I guess, cover over the failed reactor, but five years later um, it started to crumble. Well, it wasn't so much that it started to crumble. It was that, that it had been built in, in circumstances of, of such haste and desperation um, that it wasn't really that effective because the problem was that, you know, the engineers who built this thing that they called the sarcophagus um, could not get close enough to, to survey it properly, to survey the site. Ah. Uh, they were just they needed to cover it up as quickly as they possibly could and they did the best they could under the circumstances. And so what they had to do was build it by remote control using massive cranes with television cameras mounted on the ends. And um, one of the chief engineers who was responsible for putting the roof on the structure uh, explained to me that because they couldn't get close enough to weld or rivet the seams, the whole thing was constructed like a giant house of cards with kind of interference-fitting joints. And although... Soviet propaganda would have had us believe at the time that this was actually a kind of massive concrete tomb that was, you know, walling the thing in forever. The reality of it was that it had concrete walls, but it was really like a tin shed with a steel roof. Um, so it was like a kind of tent-like structure rather than a bunker. And an international team went in and tried again. Well, they... An international team decided that they would have to go in and try again, but uh. it took decades for them to get around to doing that, and they're only just finishing it now. So radiation is no longer escaping from Chernobyl now? I think I think we can officially say as of about six months ago... Six months ago? <laughs> that, radi ...that radiation is no longer escaping from Chernobyl's reactor number four. Well, put it this way... Um, when I went there in 2015... Which you went this... inside the plant. I did go inside the plant, yes, um, uh, which was an interesting experience. But when, I, but when I was there on the same visit to the plant or, or around that same time, they were just completing work on um, what they called the new safe confinement, which is this cover to go over the cover. But even then... Uh, the radiation situation around reactor number four was so perilous that they couldn't build this thing directly over the old cover. They had to build it several hundred yards away and then slide it into position once it was complete. 
Um, so it became, I think, you know, the largest man, the uh, largest land-based movable structure ever constructed. Um, but at that time, you could go and, and stand between Reactor 4, the sarcophagus, and the new safe confinement. But that area remained so toxic, so uh, you know, radioactively dangerous, that you weren't permitted to eat food in the open in case you got radioactive dust on your hands and you inadvertently ingested it. Um, but then, you know, within two years, I was attending the ceremony when they actually they'd slid the thing into, into place. Um, and this ceremony was celebrated with a big party in a tent on exactly that spot where, you know, me and a load of extremely well-fed-looking French businessmen stood around and ate profita rolls and sipped champagne and listened to speeches from Hans Blix, uh, the former head of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Um, so things changed pretty drastically during that period of time. Let's talk about... Uh in addition to the fact that this was an environmental disaster, a scientific disaster, a human disaster, you also say that it was a political and financial disaster for the Soviets. It was peculiarly ill-timed um, for the future survival of the Soviet Union. Uh, it did cost a lot of money, and it cost a lot of money at a time when the Soviet Union was already you know, sliding into bankruptcy and could ill afford another sort of slow bleed of um, of costs. You know, they, they were at that time they were suffering under the collapse in the international price of oil. Um, also, they were facing the high costs of withdrawing all their troops from Afghanistan, who had been there since the invasion of 1979. Um, so the financial cost was one thing, but I think what was more significant was the the effect it had on. Mikhail Gorbachev's thinking about reform um, because he'd only come to power the year before and had done so with the intention of, of, of conducting economic and political reform. But, you know, what he thought, what he believed is that the Soviet Union had, had simply gone astray. It had departed from the path that had been set out by Lenin and they needed to get back to first principles. Um, and so he he began engaging in a slow process of, of thinking about reform. But what happened is that Chernobyl made him realize how much he'd been hoodwinked by other senior members of the Soviet state, um, specifically those who ran the nuclear industrial complex, these men like Slavsky and Alexandrov. Um, and he came to realize as a result of, of the chaos that unfolded after the accident um, exactly how rotten the whole of the Soviet system was. And what happened is that this encouraged him to plunge suddenly into much more deep-seated reforms than he'd previously considered. And these were conducted so quickly and botched so badly that that's what led to the end of the Soviet Union. So it was a real inflection point in that sense, I think. But well, it also more widely exposed um, pre-existing faults in Soviet society that... that had previously gone unremarked or had been much less obvious. Well, Adam, this has been a real pleasure. I hope you come back and join us again. Oh, well, thank you. My guest today is Adam Higginbotham. His book is Midnight in Chernobyl, the untold story of the world's greatest nuclear disaster. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. 
Our two-part series, Chernobyl, Then and Now, continues next week with Kate Brown, a professor of science, technology, and society at MIT. We'll look at the effects on human health and the environment, the minimization of the situation by many governments and international organizations, and the total global impact of nuclearization since its beginnings in the 1940s. Her book is Manual for Survival, a Chernobyl Guide to the Future. With all the medical data being recorded about us, why can't we collect it and manage it ourselves? It turns out there's an app for that. Vincent Coonan is the founder and CEO of Andaman 7, which is spelled Andaman, A-N-D-A-M-A-N, followed by the number 7. I started out by asking him what the name Andaman meant. Well, Andaman is an island in India, and if you look on Wikipedia, it says that it's the last place on Earth that was completely isolated from the modern world. So uh, people were living in tribes, yes, there without any contact. And I wanted to show that the, and the health sector is much too isolated. There's no, not enough data exchange. There's not enough uh, maybe uh, interoperability between systems. And this prevents, I believe, uh, the patients to have a good understanding of what's happening to them. Well, if something goes well, wrong, you certainly feel isolated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so, huh? Something went very wrong for you. On two notes, you received a diagnosis of cancer, and then several months later, your son received a diagnosis of cancer. Let's talk about that. Yeah, correct. So I was uh, 43 years old, so not that old, and I got a diagnosis of uh, leukemia, chronic myeloid leukemia. That's one type of leukemia. Uh, so I took a few additional tests, and then I had the very good news that uh, I was... Um, um, no, I could be on a drug that's called Gleevec, and it's very efficient. Uh, it's the first targeted therapy for cancer, and I've been on that drug for 10 years now, and I'm in pretty good shape. So this cancer is not worse than flu like for me, you know, it's thanks to the, the very efficient medication. And as you said, three months later, my son, uh, Pierre, Peter, was diagnosed with a bone cancer. Uh, he was 10 years old, so that's, that's very oh. young for cancer. He went through, no, no pill existed for that, right? Uh, no efficient pill like mine. So he went through one year of chemotherapy, radiotherapy, uh, bone marrow transplant, and then he was amputated from his right leg. So today uh, he has a prosthesis for walking, but he's still alive, he's still here, thanks to modern medicine. And so as two cancer survivors... And with my expertise in the health IT sector, I decided to do something about it on, on the patient side and also on the, on the pharma and, and hospital side. Your byline is connecting doctor and patient. Yeah, yeah, uh, as, especially at the data level, right? Uh, so I, my firm belief is that there is a big trend uh, where patients want to have more control of their health, more control of their health data. I'm from Belgium in Europe, so uh, we have uh, the GDPR coming, you know, that says that citizens and patients should have access to their data. It's their property. They should be able to correct it, to share it with whoever they want. So that's a big change for the health industry, right? Uh, doctors and hospitals are not used to sharing data of patients, but it's coming. So uh, the goal here is to allow the patients to have all of their data on their smartphone right. coming from many sources, several hospitals, 
uh, their doctors, family doctor or specialists, but also from those new devices. You know, there's a lot of new devices for fitness that create new silos, unfortunately, usually. So all of those data sources should be aggregated, and we decided to aggregate them by the patient on their smartphone, and they have full control of that. You had a lot of experience with data for medical settings already, didn't you? Yeah, correct. Uh, I've been working in Belgium only uh, in that past company that I sold in 2014. Uh, and there we developed software to exchange data between hospitals and family doctors. And those systems were pretty successful because they cover 90% of all hospitals in Belgium and uh, about 90% also of, of family doctors. So those are capable of of exchanging some types of data. That was sort of Andaman version one. <laughs> it, yeah, if you want. <laughs> it's connecting the dots afterwards, like like Steve Jobs said, yes. Right. That's right, just connect a few dots. Um, I was very interested when I looked at this to realize that the patients have no fee for this. They're free. So at this stage of my life, I decided to do that that new company with that new product, and I absolutely wanted to have meaning to that. So I decided that the company should have a social goal in addition to a normal economic goal of, of profit, right? So, And I was thinking, how can you do that in a very efficient and uh, very effective uh, way, I should say. So I just decided that the app would be free for patients and would always be free. Okay, so today you can go to the App Store or to the Google Play, you type Andaman 7, you download it, and you can already start to manage your health data by entering data yourself, collecting data from devices, and gradually from your hospitals. Uh, but for that, we need to work with the hospitals, and we are on our way to, to have a large number of hospitals being able to send you your data. That's a social part of the project, and that's why it's free. And we want to be sustainable, too, of course, so we need to have revenue, and the revenue, we believe, will, will come from uh, pharma companies uh, doing real-world evidence and patient-reported outcome studies, or what's sometimes called clinical uh, trial phase four, adverse events management, all of those um, data points that need to be collected from the patient versus from the, the doctors, like it used to be the case for clinical trials phase one, two, three. Well, we always talk about phase one, two, three, and at the end of three, if you're lucky and everything works, then it becomes a registered product. And for years, we said, great, everybody just use it. But unfortunately, there are adverse events. Mm -hmm. And now we've gone to what is now called phase four, where manufacturers have to track adverse events and take. A, sometimes a drug will be withdrawn from the market, such as in the case of Vioxx. Mm -hmm. And so where do you get that data? Well, you could get it from the doctors, but you could just as easily get it from the patients. In fact, you could get very good data because you would know a number of things, such as compliance with uh, mm -hmm. taking the drug and side effects and all those kinds of things. So for right. providing the data that the pharmaceutical companies need to report for phase four, that you could charge. And so that's, exactly. that's the loop. That's the loop. Exactly. And besides adverse events, there are other needs, too, because the payers in, in countries like the United States or social security in European countries, it's different, but they have the same goals, right? Reducing costs and providing a better service to, 
to patients. And uh, they realized that some of the drugs would maybe uh, give you six months more of life. But if you are in a very bad uh, situation or if the drug makes you f uh, feel very sick, it's not very useful for, for the patient and the patient don't like those drugs anyways. So the payers and the social security say, well, we're not going to reimburse those, those kind of drugs, drugs because six more months of this bad quality of life is not worth it, right? So that's why they want to have patient reports on the quality of the drug. So it's more, a lot more subjective than before. It used to be clinical uh, reports. Now it's real subjective patient reports uh, to, to see if the drug is really worth reimbursing. So that's why there is a big change in, in the pharma sector uh, today. So this is available now. You could get it at the Apple Store and download it for free and start building your own uh, data. Your own medical record. Complete. Medical record. I even say health records because it contains medical data, but also fitness data, nutrition data. It could be health, mental health data in some cases, and, and uh, genetic data is coming too also. So it should be as complete as possible. How do you protect it with all the cyber security issues that have come up? Well, that's a very, very good question. And that's being from, from Europe, we are very sensitive to privacy, as, we, as you know. So we do not store any data in the cloud. That's a very big differentiator from other players, right? So as a, as a patient, if you collect data from your hospital, it will flow from your hospital to your phone. And when that is finished, there is nothing left in the cloud, Right, So the data only resides on your smartphone or in the hospital or any other place you, 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 you share. You download it too, yeah. Yeah, voila. Uh, for example, I, I share my, my children's data uh, with my wife. So she has a full copy of everything. So in case one of us loses their smartphone, there is a backup somewhere, right? But as a company, we do not have access to the data. And there is no central place with all the data. So for, for hackers, it's very difficult, right? You don't have a central place. If you don't protect your own phones or your own electronics, then it's not protected. But if you protect that... Correct. And if, if you don't protect it and you, it gets stolen, uh, first there is a password on the smartphone, you can add a password on, on the Andaman 7 application itself. But for a hacker, it's not very interesting because it's going to be one health record, right? Maybe two or three of your children. It's not very interesting. For hackers, what's interesting is large amounts of data. So our system, by design, is not very attractive to, to hackers. Decentralizes the data. Exactly, exactly. exactly. I would say there's, there ain't no tunes at iTunes. It's like, yeah, iTunes doesn't store all that music out there. It has links. Oh, you want that? It goes to links to whoever owns the the data or mm -hmm. is distributing the song. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that case, you know, there ain't, there ain't no medical records at Andaman uh, 7. <laughs> They're just links. Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> good design. Good design. Thank well, you. Vincent, thank you very much, and, and, and good luck, and, and, and God, God bless to you and your family. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me here. Vincent Koonen is the founder and CEO of Andaman 7, a Belgian-American e-health company. More information is available at andaman7.com. That's A-N-D-A-M-A-N, Andaman, followed by the number 7.com. We recently interviewed Halosyme CEO Helen Torley about their efforts to make existing cancer treatments more effective. 
It turns out Halozyme is also working to improve how these drugs are delivered. You see, often when treating cancer or other conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis, patients need to go to an infusion center where drugs are slowly infused into their veins. This can take many hours. Halozyme has developed a technology which shortens that experience. I asked Helen to tell us about it. That's correct. Um, uh, some of today's most important therapies do have to be given um, into the vein. That takes a lot of uh, time for the patient because they don't just have to sit there for the infusion. They have to go through a, a checkup, get the drug formulated and delivered. Uh, and you can imagine if you're a cancer patient and uh, you're on your recovery, that having to go back to an infusion center every three weeks just reminds you again when you spend the day there that you're ill. Um, what we're doing at Halozyme is we've developed a technology we call the Enhance Platform, um, which, when it's co-formulated with some of these leading therapies, allows them to be given in a shorter, simpler injection underneath the skin. Some of today's therapies that today take an hour or 90 minutes, we can give in 10 minutes, uh, and those are approved around the world. We're also working on one of today's important therapies for multiple myeloma, where many patients take about six hours to get their IV infusion, and we're in clinical testing now uh, with a three to five minute injection underneath the skin. Um, so for these patients, hopefully they can be back at work, they can get in and out of the infusion centre a lot quicker and get back to their normal lives, which is what patients with cancer who are recovering really want to do. So you have to go through each of the particular treatments each particular drug and have it approved for that? Uh, yes, we do. We have got um, three approved drugs today, uh, but we're in clinical testing at the moment with eight additional drugs to find out if our co-formulation can allow them to be delivered in that shorter, simpler injection. Uh, and that's just the beginning. We actually have got eight partners in total and many other drugs that are being considered for being taken forward to be transformed into the subcutaneous, uh, simpler, shorter delivery. How good can this get? Um, let me use the example of we're in clinical testing and development with a, a therapy that uh, Janssen is developing. It's a drug called daratumumab that has been developed for patients with multiple myeloma. And it's approved as an intravenous infusion today. Because it can cause some infusion reactions, uh, it tends to be given slowly. Uh, first infusions can take 8 to 10 hours. Often for maintenance patients, it's taking 4 to 6 hours every 3 weeks for the patient to get their therapy. Um, we are in clinical testing now after some encouraging early stage results to say that with the co-formulation within hands, it can be given in just 3 to 5 minutes underneath the skin. Um, so we're uh, working with Janssen uh, on four phase three clinical studies. Those are the studies you need to deliver to the FDA uh, to gain the approval. And we're very hopeful that by 2020, if those studies are uh, successful, patients will have another option. They'll be able to receive uh, Darzelec subcutaneously as well as intravenously, and patients will have a choice. What's going to happen to all those infusion centers? <laughs> uh, at this point in time, many of the therapies that we are converting with Enhanced to Sub-Q are still being given in the infusion centers. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there actually is a capacity constraint today in infusion centers around the United States. There's so many amazing new therapies that are being developed, particularly in cancer, that patients are having to come in on weekends. There are night shifts now. And so the additional potential benefits 
benefit of having more subcutaneous therapies within hands is that more patients can be seen during the day. And there's more patient throughput, which the... Um, clinical centers and the oncology centers really like the concept of that uh, because then they don't have to be doing these weekend shifts and things like that. So, And then if we look towards the future, uh, we do know companies are beginning to think about, can this be done in the doctor's office? Can we start giving patients devices with a sub-Q formulation where they can do it at home? Um, we haven't done that yet, but there has been some interesting work um, being contemplated now to say, uh, which of these therapies could be a patient be doing at their home? And again, what a great additional step forward uh, to patients being able to take their life back. How does it work? Underneath all of our skin is a sugar called hyaluronin. And with this, this hyaluronin, it actually serves as a barrier that prevents you being able to inject large volumes of fluid or large molecules underneath the skin. Our therapy in hands, when you inject it underneath the skin, uh, breaks down the sugar molecules, hyaluronin, and creates channels. And it's these channels that allow you to inject larger volumes of fluid or large molecules where they can be exposed to the blood vessels and the lymphatic system and be absorbed that way. Now, the great news is this is temporary. It doesn't do any long-term damage to your skin, but it does allow you to be able to inject. Uh, often uh, we have one therapy where uh, the patient can receive up to 600 milliliters into their abdomen in a single setting that allows them to receive a whole month of therapy. Um, and so that's a wonderful benefit of Enhance for Patients. Where did this bright idea come up from? Um, it actually came from the scientific founder of our company, a gentleman named Gregory Frost. Um, he was the CEO prior to me, and he actually did his PhD thesis uh, in this area. And uh, he identified different uses for a hyaluronidase, uh, which is basically a therapy that breaks down hyaluronin. And he knew that hyaluronin was expressed underneath the skin. And there might be an opportunity to deliver therapy intravenously. And he also knew that certain cancer cells um, have a lot of hyaluronin about them. And there might be another application in cancer as well. So here you are. You're the CEO and he's off thinking of new things. Uh, yes, uh, Greg is. He uh, continues to be uh, an, an important uh, advisor and friend to the company. But yes, he's, he's off doing different things now. Well, thank you so much, uh, Helen. We really appreciate it. And that's great. Thank you. Helen Torley is the president and CEO of Halozyme Therapeutics. More information about Enhance, that's E-N-H-A-N-Z-E, Enhance, is available at halozyme.com. That's Halo, H-A-L-O, and Zyme, Z-Y-M-E, halozyme.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.